0: And you can read some more about Pete Hammond in your bulletin, but I just wanted to uh, thank Pete for coming. Pete's an old friend of uh, the Efords, and we're always looking for good uh, expositors of the scriptures to come open up the Word of God for us, so we're excited to have uh, Pete here with us. I learned this morning that as a young man, he was a professional rodeo person, and I thought how appropriate it was for him to go to the rodeo into college ministry and InterVarsity. Uh because I would imagine just getting into the college crowd for 40 years, he was involved with InterVarsity from uh, the 60s um, on through now. Think about the kinds of uh, things he rode in the course of that 40 years being on college campuses, so we're grateful uh, to be able to support Matt Seidel, who is here, and Part of interVarsity and part of uh, our congregation, and we're grateful for Pete to be here and to bring us the word of God. Thank you, Pete. Welcome.
1: I saw. Him, yeah, hi, Matt. I was surprised, surprised this morning when I woke up at 5 a.m. Because my immediate thought was about my mom. She was born 100 years ago this week. And I hadn't thought about that at all. So I focused on it for a few minutes. Her memory, she lived till she was 90... as I began to review her life a little I thought she never expected what it was going to be like she was born a hundred years ago in Providence, Rhode Island at 14 she ran away from home because she had the classic caricature of a stepmother she fled to Greenwich Village, New York at 14 and began to hang out with the beatnik poets in bars and coffee houses in the early 1920s. But what she never would have expected, much like we don't expect when it comes to family life is that she would end up being married to three very different men her first husband she met in the bank in new york city they were both teenagers they got married and on the night they got married her new husband announced to her esther i'm a homosexual you adjust there's a way to start a marriage took her a year and a half to get out of it with help of police and the YWCA. A few years later, she met my dad, a rodeo cowboy who'd been abandoned when he was seven. was now performing one of the dumbest sports ever invented in the world, bulldogging or steer wrestling. We won't go into the explanation. If you know about it, you agree with me. If you don't, I'll explain later. So Dad was a deeply lonely man. He never knew love. And it's not surprising now, to when I look back, to understand why he was a lifelong alcoholic. That lasted 22 years. They divorced as I headed off to college as a brand new Christian. Which also interrupted family life a lot, because I came one of the, became one of those Bible thumping new convert Jesus people telling the, my parents they were going to hell. That's a lovely way to start a relationship with non-believers. A few years later, <coughs> after my mom had re-entered the modeling industry, she married one of her salesmen, who was a Jewish. Undergarment salesman or a Jewish brassiere salesman, as I explained to one of my co workers in a varsity one night. It was, his name was Paul Little. Uh, we were swapping stories in the middle of the night. I told him that my mom married a Jewish brassiere salesman. He flipped on the lights in our motel room and said, Pete, what's a Jewish brassiere look like anyway? <laughs> I love Paul Little. <laughs> Uh, seldom do we expect what's going to happen in marriage. In part because we have worldviews or expectations that are shaped by the culture of what marriage is supposed to be like, and we have this backload of what family life was like for us. That we either want to replicate or flee from and never do it again. My life as a child in that family with one sibling, a sister, basically during preteen and teen years, yes, it was in the rodeo ring with after show parties at our ranch in upstate New York. Now I realize you have to think twice about that. A ranch in upstate New York. But my daddy was from Texas. As the text says this morning, we have views of things that we need to transform. Let go of the old view and grow into a new view that is kingdom oriented, Christ centered, spirit filled, biblically informed. But here's how severe our struggle is. To move from a culturally shaped understanding of family life to a more biblical goal we work toward. Many of us, at least those who are older than 45, I'll take a shot in the dark here. We have images of family life shaped by television in the 50s and 60s. It's epitomized by two family life shows that are very nostalgic for America, at least white America. It's Ozzie and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver. We have these fantasy images of what it was like for them, forgetting it was on TV and totally scripted. Or, if you're younger, maybe 35 and under, you might have some other images shaped by this beast called television. Television. Your theories or fears about family life might come from television shows like The Bunkers with Archie and that male ego. Or it might come from The Bundys and their view of the dynamics between husband and wife and their two teenage kids, which are kind of perverse and frankly very familiar to me. Or your understanding of family life might be informed positively or negatively by the Barr family. You remember Roseanne and that family? Definite images of family life a little different from Ozzy and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver. Or and some of you younger people meaning Maybe 22 or under will have to explain this one to your parents. Because they won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Your understanding of family dynamics might be the Osborne family. Ozzy Osborne. I can see blank stares. The youth group needs to have a little session for the adults on who in the world are the Osborns And what was their family life like? They're still pretty hot commodity and very sick. Where do we get our ideas about family life? Mine were shaped in this family called Jack Hammond and Esther Taylor Hammond. Yeah, she was named after the movie star. And some of it I cherish and some of it I want to flee. So then I come to Jesus at 16 through the first girl I ever loved in my life. And We married after college. We both brought some baggage, some hopes and fears about what it would be for us to build a family. That journey has been very full and very rich. And I'm still wrestling with the fact that it ended in October of 07 when Shirley died from cancer. But One of the places where we have gone to try and get a handle on what in the world did God intend when he created family in Genesis chapter 2. We've gone back repeatedly to Scripture and to the congregations that we belong to in Norfolk, Virginia, Norfolk for those of you who never lived there, or New Orleans where I started my career within a varsity, or Atlanta, where I was the regional director, or Madison, Wisconsin, or Manila, Philippines. We got quite a privilege in being able to move around a bit. Late or midway through our marriage, I began to flee to the scriptures. How on earth does God describe family life? What are reasonable expectations regarding family Well, what I want to focus on this morning is a narrative of what we read in the Ephesians text about you have these old ways. They need to be transformed. You should no longer live by the unredeemed patterns that are true to you or inherited from your family. The narrative that I want to go to is the first book in the Bible, Genesis. It is family rich. And family frightening. For in the first book of the Bible, where God is trying to open up reality and the hope of the kingdom of God. We meet eight different family units. These are kind of the first families of the kingdom of God. You start out with Adam and Eve and the boys. Then you quickly move to Lamech and his two wives and their sons. Then by the time you're in Genesis chapter 6, you bump into Noah and his boys. Then you move along to Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, before they begin to cooperate with God. Then we, we meet Lot with his family. Then Isaac and Rebekah then Jacob and Leah, and then Judah. Those are kind of iconic names for family systems. Eight of them in the book of Genesis. Now in the tradition that you and I share, kind of evangelical, biblically loyal, redemptive evangelicals, we claim to take Scripture really serious. Well, what do we mean When we crawl into the book of Genesis, we start reading about these families. Eight different units. I've done family trees on each one of them to understand all the intricacies and the complexities. And to give you a summary, here's what you mean. Eight family units described by God have 49 major dysfunctionalities. And I'll unpack those for you in a minute. Now this is God presenting family to us. There's a degree of realism here that's really sobering. For instance, uh, it's a little bit more like the Osborne's than it is Leave it to Beaver. That's for sure. <clears throat> Let's look, first of all, there are nine different types of dysfunctionalities revealed or exposed in the book of Genesis. First, Sibling rivalries. Now parents, think about your children if you have more than one. Or adults. Think about your birth family and if you had brothers or sisters. And how that went. I had one sister. I'm still struggling to like her and I'm 72. So we have the first sibling or family situation in the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 3 and 4 we got Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and they have a family business that has two distinct industries in it farming and food production and cattle and meat and wool and leather production this pretty significant family but the boys will be boys And they have a religious tradition of making offerings from their workplace to God on an annual basis. And so Cain makes his offering to God, and Abel makes his offering to God, and God smiles at Abel and doesn't respond to Cain. You know how powerful facial expressions are in family dynamics? I realize I can freeze one of my grandchildren by just frowning at them. It's kind of fun sometimes. (laughs) I can also bless one of my in-law children by smiling at the right time. So you have these two boys and their two offerings. And one gets a positive reaction the other one doesn't get a reaction. Well, that creates a little bit of activity in the one who's ignored or unresponded to. And so now I'm guessing as to how it went. We know what happened between Cain and Abel after this. What I imagine is Cain, the big brother, invites the baby brother Abel out to go out on a picnic for the boys in the fields that Cain knows very well. And here's this irritating little baby brother. Aren't all little baby brothers and sisters irritating? And he says to his little baby brother, Oh, look over there. And the little baby brother kind of goes, Oh, what? And my image of what might have taken place in this text is Cain picks up one of these familiar rocks and crushes the head of his baby brother. Now here's a principle in Bible study. Stop right there and think about it. What's dinner like that night? Daddy Adam? Mom Eve? Pain in this damn empty chair. What was dinner like that night as they all try and live into this new reality of murder within a family, the loss of the youngest child? I think God's using a little shock therapy on us regarding family life. The story ends very quickly after that with Cain living in deep fear. Guilt will do that to you. So he lives with fear that what he has done is going to happen to him. And he expresses that to God. And God makes a commitment to him. I will protect you from being murdered. The story is over. It goes on to describe other things. But then we're invited back in Genesis chapter 4 to Adam and Eve and Cain again for one more little look into this family. It reads this way, Genesis 4.25. Adam knew his wife Eve again and she bore a son and named him Seth. And she said, now you hear the mom with the baby in her arms? She said, God has appointed me another child instead of Abel because Cain killed him. And that's all we learn. Lock on to that one for a minute and dwell there. Here's a grieving mother of a dead child with a new baby. Seth. She looks at him, and in her mind will call him Seth, because Abel is dead, whom Cain killed. Let's ask a couple of questions regarding family systems. What might Cain be thinking and feeling when he hears mom? He'd gotten rid of the competition before. He'd already killed Abel, and here's a new one. To compete with. What is that trigger in Cain in the way he's going to function in the family business and the family dynamics? But then let's think about little Seth. And Seth begins to develop as a little boy and then he moves into puberty, that weird dynamic where things happen to your body and your mind and your interests. And what does Cain understand? about his significance my guess is it slowly dawned on him she doesn't love me she loves me as a substitute for some dead kid named Abel this is the first family of the Bible welcome to family life and all kinds of funny stuff happening well, let's look at a second one. I'm not going to look at all 40, all eight families and all 43 dysfunctionalities. I do have a deadline here. It's right up on that clock. <clears throat> we move further into a second set of dysfunctionalities. Lying and deception in family life. And we hear the story about a young man who meets a woman he wants to marry at a workplace called a watering well. He meets her. He wants to marry her, so he goes to her father and he asks permission. The man's name is Lot, or Laban. Jacob goes to Laban and asks permission, may I marry your daughter Rachel? Why, certainly, you can join my family business, which was agribusiness, work for seven years and then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob joins the family business, he works for seven years. They perform the wedding and I have no idea how this possibly could have happened. Unless I think about a Bedouin tent in the Middle East in the evening, the ceremony with the shroud, you know, the covering that they wear, the women wear, at a wedding, They go into the tent. The next morning he wakes up and he realizes, "That's not Rachel. That's her ugly sister, Leah. I got tricked. So he goes to his father-in-law and says, "What's up? I worked for seven years for Rachel. You gave me Leah." Oh yeah. Work for me seven more years and you'll get the pretty one." I have a name for that father-in-law. <laughs> That's the father-in-law from hell. <clears throat> lying and deception in family life. Or well, let me tell you one that becomes extremely personal. We'll move to another dysfunctionality, from sibling rivalry to lying and deception to addiction and chemical abuse. We didn't invent chemical abuse. Let's go to one of the most famous men in the Bible named Noah. Noah must have been a very unique neighbor. Because God tells Noah, who is assessed as a righteous man, I want you to build a boat in the backyard. Now this is the Middle East, it's not near any water. What kind of a neighbor is this He starts building this thing in the backyard? Noah obeys, he builds the ark, the flood comes, he loads on the family, and two kinds of every species, and off they float, the flood ends. Noah goes into a second business after the flood. He plants a vineyard to make wine. Noah apparently loves his product a little too much. Because the story we don't tell in Sunday school, we tell about the ark. We don't tell about Genesis 9 where Noah drinks too much of his product and gets drunk. Drunk like my father got drunk. I don't think I'll ever forget the image one morning coming out after a rodeo party that lasted for two days. I came out of the house to go to the barn to do the chores. There's my dad who was the host of the party on the lawn unconscious and naked and hungover. That's a striking image for a little boy. (laughs) One of Noah's sons came out of the tent, and there's Daddy Noah, naked and unconscious and hungover. And he's embarrassed, especially in their culture. So he goes into the tent, he wakes up his two brothers, tells them what he saw, and the two brothers do not want to have that image or have to answer for it. So they back out of the tent with a blanket and they cover up Noah. Noah wakes up, like my dad would wake up, kind of mean-spirited. Hangovers are nasty things. And Noah, in his fit of sickness and hangover and maybe migraine headache, who knows, learns that his son has seen him naked And he pronounces a curse on the son's unborn children. Happy family life. Not leave it to Beaver. And I don't even think Ozzy Osbourne has done that one. Although his son acts cursed sometimes. But here's another sick thing about it. One of my operating definitions when I read the scriptures and look at myself in the mirror is sin has given us the terrible ability to misuse every good thing. Noah did it. He misused it. That's what's going to happen. Weddings are delicate coalitions of sinners. And if they're in the faith, they're a delicate coalition of sinners in recovery. I preached my youngest daughter's wedding and told the Noah story my wife wanted to shoot me talking about this drunk father and curses at a wedding but standing in front of me was my daughter and my six foot five son-in-law smiling because they understood they were recovering sinners and they were forming a union of dangerous possibilities Welcome to family life. Danger ahead. Here's my definition of a family. A family is a coalition, both voluntarily and involuntary, of sinners who will be themselves. That makes family life an unpredictable combination of hope and fear, strength and weakness, Conflict and relief, pain and joy, intimacy and loneliness, sweet and sour. Does Jesus make a difference? Faith equips this group of recovering sinners to become more honest about their shortcomings and offer hope and forgiveness to each other. Family in Christ should be a safe place on a dangerous journey to maturity in Christ. It's to be a place where pretense, failure, pain, and sin continues to diminish amid love and acceptance. So, we're a congregation of recovering sinners somewhere along the journey. We're involved in two different kinds of family. The one you were born into, And the one you're a part of now? And we make the claim that we're Christians. What are we actually announcing to each other? And to the watching community in your workplace, your neighborhood, and your extended family? I close with this. It's a gift to me from my wife, Shirley. She found this someplace. We can't identify the author. But it speaks volumes to me, and it did to her. When I say I'm a Christian, I am not shouting, I am saved. I'm whispering. I get lost. This is why I chose this way. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't speak with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and need someone to be my guide. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging about success. I'm admitting I have failed and cannot ever repay the debt. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. When I say I'm a Christian, I still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartaches, which is why I seek Christ's name. And finally, when I say I'm a Christian, I do not wish to judge. I have no authority. I only know I am loved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for taking another risk with us by loaning us today. By letting us have another meal of our choice, dress the way we'd like, and show up to be together here. Thank you for your willingness to run the risks of adding on to our lives, knowing as sinners we'll probably misuse it one way or the other. Thank you, too, for your candid realism about family life in the scriptures. Broken, dysfunctional, dangerous. But where we can have hope. Because of Christ. The Spirit. The Word. And the Church. Help us to move more toward honesty. And offer each other forgiveness. In the midst of family life. So the watching world sees honesty, forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ. Amen.